Hello and welcome. This is the fourth episode in our Burning Heart podcast series, Deuteronomy Wellness God's Way. We originally wrote this series for film, so do check out the videos if you haven't done already on our website where they're free, burningheart.org forward slash Deuteronomy. But wanted to have a podcast version of the series as well, and obviously this is it. I'm David, David Ingle, and I'm the writer of this series and the founder and director of Burning Heart. And it's a joy to have you with us once more. Last year, I became a father for the first time, and it's a roller coaster ride with lots of joys and a few challenges. I love my daughter, Beatrice. She just melts my heart. And she loves being with me. But one of the scary things about being a dad is that she not only loves being with me, but also trying to do what I do. And one thing she's really keen on is grabbing my phone, despite not being able to do anything with it. It took me a while to work out that the reason was that I clearly spend far too much time looking at my phone myself. She was just copying me. And this dynamic of children picking things up from you is one that all parents will recognise. And it's one that Moses was well aware of. In Deuteronomy 6, he imagines a scene where a child turns to their parents and asks, What is the meaning of the stipulations, decrees and laws the Lord our God has commanded you? Then, as now, sharing our faith with our children is one of the primary responsibilities of parents. And it seems the law was supposed to be such a part of daily life for the Israelites that children would pick up on it and be asking their parents for an explanation of what it's all about. What's the meaning of it all? It's an intriguing question. How would you answer it? That the law's about rules and regulations? Positive or negative? How? Well, that's the question I want to explore now as we unpack Deuteronomy chapters 6 to 11. It's the opening half of Moses' longest sermon in this book, which began with the Ten Commandments in chapter 5 and will then finish by moving on to the details of the law in chapters 12 to 26. We'll skip for today some of the harder parts of these chapters, that address God's commands to the Israelites to drive the Canaanite nations out of the promised land. Not because I want to avoid them, but because most of us really struggle with them. And so I want to wrestle with them separately in the next episode, so that we can focus here on exploring that question. What is the meaning of the law? Well, the answer Moses tells parents to give their children in Deuteronomy 6 reinforces some of the surprises of Deuteronomy so far. Because it's not firstly about rules, but about the people's relationship with God. Who God is, what he's done for them, and how they are supposed to respond. It begins with story. Chapter 6, verse 20. We were slaves of Pharaoh in Egypt, but the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. Before our eyes, the Lord sent signs and wonders, great and terrible, on Egypt and Pharaoh and his whole household. But he brought us out from there to bring us in and give us the land he promised. It's a story of God's greatness and of his love and grace. 
And only then do we move to what they are supposed to do in response. Moses continues, The Lord commanded us to obey all these decrees and to fear the Lord our God. So, as we've already seen in this series, obedience is a response to grace. Not the way of obtaining or earning it, but the natural overflow of a thankful heart. And even then, actually that obedience is explained as being for their sake, not God's. The parents are supposed to carry on, that it would be so that we might always prosper and be kept alive. The meaning of the law is that God loves them and wants to bless them, and so calls them into a relationship and obedience to him. Now, many of the details are slightly different for them under the covenant of the law, and us as part of the new covenant in Jesus. But this little parent-child role play shows us that the law was always about more than just rules and regulations. It had a meaning a purpose. And that purpose was rooted in their relationship with God, to show them its start in God's grace, and then to call them into obedience as their response, and the way of nurturing and protecting that relationship with God. And that dynamic of grace and obedience and relationship is the same for us as Christians. I want to unpack all this a bit more by focusing on another verse, which is probably the most famous verse in Deuteronomy, even the whole Old Testament. Deuteronomy 6, 4 and 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. It's sometimes called the Shema, which is the Hebrew word for hear, its first word. And to this day, many Jews recite it daily. And when Jesus was asked what he thought was the greatest commandment, he responded by quoting this verse, which explains why it's so famous and well-loved and shows us that this central call remains the same for us as it was for them. It's a much more challenging, even controversial command than first meets the eye, though. It comes at the start of the section we're looking at in this film and in many ways acts as a sort of theme sentence, introducing and summarising everything that will follow in the next six chapters. Once again, it's rooted in relationship. It begins with a reminder and call to hear who God is and then continues by calling us to love God in response. But this isn't simply an invitation to relationship, God asking us out on a date, if you like. It's a command. And for all its familiarity, that's an aspect of this that actually really jars with our modern ideas and preconceptions. Because for most of us in our culture today, love is primarily an emotion, a feeling, something that we fall into or out of. You can't control who you love, except you can, because God commands us to love him. And actually, as we'll see later, he then also commands us to love each other. The greatest commandment is this, to love the Lord your God. And immediately our understanding of love is made to shift from something passive 
to something deliberate and active. We can and we must choose to love God. When we talk about love, our minds usually go straight to romance. But I think that a better illustration here is to turn back to the love that parents have for their children. And as I've been discovering, as well as the joy and delight, that's a love that also requires quite a lot of effort. All the crying and the nappies and the sleepless nights. I do it because I love my daughter. It flows out of the relationship that is already there. Just as in this verse, God starts with who he is and the fact that he is already their God and in relationship with them. But then my love for Beatrice needs to go beyond just emotions and feelings. I have to choose to act on it, to change that nappy, to drag myself out of bed or whatever it might be. Love for a baby is very proactive. And it actually impacts on everything in my life. Even my sleep is no longer my own. Now, of course, the benefits outweigh the costs. When Beatrice smiles and laughs and, in her own baby way, loves me back, my heart leaps and melts. And, of course, with loving God, that is also true, even more true. And parenting is usually used the other way round as an illustration of our relationship with God. He is our Father. And God is the one who makes all the running and who loves us perfectly, even in the midst of far worse than nappies and sleepless nights. And yet, I think this illustration of parenthood is helpful here, because it's the one relationship where, in our culture, love is still synonymous with hard work and effort. And so it shows us what it means to choose to love someone proactively and deliberately as God calls us to do in this verse. And that proactive and deliberate nature of love is then reinforced by the words that follow, heart, soul and strength. Each word is full of meaning and bigger, if you like, in Hebrew than in English, which incidentally is why there's a long history of using more than three words to translate this saying into other languages, as we see in some of the Gospels, where there are four. The first word is levav, heart. Now, as in English, Hebrew uses heart metaphorically, but as well as speaking of our emotions and feelings, it also refers to our understanding, our minds and intellect and will. This covers every thought, every feeling, every hope and every dream. As David sang in the Psalms, let all my inmost being praise his holy name. Do we use all our inmost being and all the actions that flow out of it to love God? Because that's what this means. What do you spend your time thinking about, dreaming about? When you wake up in the morning or you're at a loose end during the day, Do you reach for your phone and catch up on your social media? Or do you turn your mind and heart to God and use them to love him? Love God with all your heart. And then we're told to love God with all our soul. In Hebrew, the word is nefesh. It essentially means our whole being, all of who we are. So, for instance, in Genesis 2, when God breathes life into the first person, 
we're told they became a living nefesh, usually translated living being. And actually, another common translation of nefesh is simply life. It basically covers everything, all that we are, all that makes me me and you you. Love God with all of it. It makes me think of the English phrase, to devote your life to something or other. Civil rights or justice or football. To love God with all your nefesh means to devote your life to loving God. And when you put that together with what it means to love God with all your heart, there doesn't seem to be much room left for anything else. This is a call to love God with everything we've got. And yet, there's a third bit. To love God with all our strength or energy. And this one's the hardest of all to translate because the word meod literally just means very. But love God with all your very doesn't seem to make much sense, hence strength, which carries that same sense of emphasis as very. You could maybe think of it like writing love God with everything you've got, all caps and in bold and then circling and underlining it. This is not the place for feeble or half-hearted God-loving. This is full-throttle, high-energy, loving God to the max. Which is big and challenging. Do I do that? Can I do that? What would it look like if I did, if you did? If everything about us was like this, and we really did love God with all our heart, and all our soul, and all our strength. But it's not just that that gives this command its bite. It's also the priority that loving God is given. I've already mentioned that this call to love God opens and summarises this section of the sermon and the book, a sort of theme sentence. And pretty much everything Moses goes on to say in the next six chapters is about making their relationship with God their first priority. And of course, Jesus then highlighted this as the most important command of them all. So this is the big one. Bigger than don't steal or don't lie or don't murder. Bigger than love your neighbour. This is the most important calling on your life. More important than your career or your morals. More important than staying true to yourself. This outranks your responsibility to your family. Is that all really what Jesus was saying? Well, yes. And for us today, that is explosively countercultural. Because instinctively, we'd put all those other things I've just listed above loving God. And to reverse that order, to put loving God first, would actually seem wrong to many people. Because we worry that prioritising God deprioritises people. But actually, nothing could be further from the truth. Have you ever wondered why when Jesus was asked what the greatest commandment was, he also told us what the second one, love your neighbour as yourself, was too? something he wasn't asked. I think the reason is that to love God and to love your neighbour are inextricably interwoven. And Jesus didn't want people to forget that. He wanted to emphasise a fact that is stated again and again in the Bible. 
that to love God necessarily also means loving our neighbour. As we love God more, we'll find that far from loving our neighbour less, we love them more too. And this is one key example of a basic pattern and assumption that we find everywhere in Deuteronomy. That to love God also means following in his ways and keeping his commands. As Moses begins to sum up this section in chapter 10, he asks, And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you? And the answer he gives weaves together relationship and obedience as though they're the same thing. They're told to fear the Lord your God, to walk in obedience to him, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to observe the Lord's commands. I think of it like the sun, which is not just the source of light and warmth on a summer's day, but also the source of so much more from plant life to the seasons, even the energy that powers my car ultimately comes directly or indirectly from the sun. And for us as Christians, it should be like that with our relationship with God. Our love for God is the source and inspiration for how we go about everything in life. And so love for God actually becomes one of the greatest forces for good in the world. The church today, as ever, has all kinds of flaws and problems, and yet it still shows us this in action. For instance, a recent report found that in my own church, the Church of England alone, there were 33,000 social action projects running, from food banks to parents and toddler groups. Now, there are differences between the details of what this looked like for ancient Israel and what it looks like for us. And many of the individual commands God gave Israel were specific to them, or designed to prepare the way for Jesus. And so, as we'll explore more when we dive into the details in chapters 12 to 26 in a couple of sessions' time, they don't all apply directly to us. But this dynamic of our faith and love for God overflowing into every part of life is the same for us today. As Paul wrote to the Colossians, Whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. That's Colossians 3.17. But why? Why is this all so important? Why is God so insistent about the importance of loving him and following in his ways? To us, it, it can come across as a bit needy. Why does God need my love, my obedience so much? Well, the answer is that he doesn't. Because he loves us, he does want us to love him back, but he doesn't need us to. But we do. We need to love God for our own good. And that's a surprising theme that comes out again and again in Deuteronomy. As we saw at the start of this film, part of Moses' explanation of the meaning of the law is that obedience is so that we might always prosper. As I pointed out in the first episode in the series, one of the refrains of Deuteronomy is that it may go well with you. God calls them, and us, to love him, and in loving him to obey him for our own good. For the ancient Israelites, that was quite concrete and tangible, because it was tied to God's gift of the promised land to them. 
Now, as the land isn't part of our relationship with God and Jesus, we can often skim over these bits. The land gives us the most beautiful picture and illustration of the blessings of following in God's ways. Blessings which, for us as New Testament believers, can often seem intangible and difficult to get our heads around until we find an image like this that we can more easily grasp. Imagine the people of Israel, scarred and downtrodden by slavery and wearied by decades of wandering in the wilderness as they come into their inheritance, a land of beauty and abundance, described as flowing with milk and honey a land of their own, a land of safety and rest under the protection of our mighty God. And in that picture, you can see a glimpse of God's heart and desire to bless you and of the blessings of relationship with him. And even in Deuteronomy, there's a hint of an even greater inheritance though. As Moses explains that the Levites, his tribe, the chosen tribe, don't have a physical inheritance in the land. Why? Well, because the Lord is their inheritance. Deuteronomy 10 verse 9. And for us in Jesus, the Lord is now our inheritance too. And we can have a relationship of love and intimacy with God that goes beyond what even Moses has. As by the Holy Spirit, we cry Abba, Father, and know him as children with their heavenly dad. And that is why we must love God. Because not to do so is to forsake light and joy and beauty for darkness and desolation. And so as we finish this film, let's pray. Lord God, would you refresh my vision of you. Meet with me now and fill me afresh with your Holy Spirit and help me to love you with all my heart and all my soul and all my strength. Come Holy Spirit.